That's why we're here today, isn't it? Because of good news. You're here because either you're hoping that you're going to hear good news today because the world has beat you up, or you know and have tasted the good news, and so you come because this is a place that you want to be a part of. But that's what church is, a place a community of good news. In fact, this is going to be part of what my sermon is about today. Well, we've come to the end of the book of Ephesians. It has been a book that is filled, a letter that has been filled with a lot of good news for the church, for the people of God. But we need to come to the end of this series. And so I'm going to ask that you would stand with me as we come to the final words of Ephesians chapter 6, and if you're able, you can stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be beginning at uh, verse 10. Hear these words. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take a stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. God, these have been good words that we have been studying together. Thank you for inspiring Paul to pen them nearly 2,000 years ago, but somehow inspiring us with the same Holy Spirit to make them come alive today in our presence. Would you do that for us? We ask in your name. Amen. You can be seated. Finally, writes Paul, one last thing I have to tell you saints. He's given us so much to consider in these five and a half chapters that we've studied thus far. So many good words. Things to ponder. Things that I didn't even have time to touch on. And I know I've been kind of long-winded. But I haven't even got to it all yet. So much good is in this book. But one final instruction from Paul. Put on the full armor of God. In fact, he's so sure that you need to do this that he says it twice. Did you notice that? Verse 11 and verse 13, he repeats himself. Anytime scripture has this repetition of words or phrases, 
We need to take note because there's something here that we need to pay particular attention to. It's not as if, oh, we've come to the end of Ephesians and look at all this good that has been written thus far. It has been good. That, oh, we can exhale now. We can finally just kind of step back a little bit. He said the important stuff. And if we have time, if we feel like it will get to these, this last part, no, Paul doesn't want you to make that mistake. Twice, he tells us, put on the whole armor of God. I've been wondering why he uses the metaphor of armor. He doesn't really talk about anything of, of military nature earlier in this uh, letter. And so it just is kind of curious to me, why did he choose this as the metaphor to teach us, to train us? And if you know Paul's story, then you know that he, met, he spent many occasions in prison, didn't he? Under the guard of Roman soldiers. So he had hours, days, months to sit in prison and to stare at the armor of soldiers. And I wonder if at some point as he's sitting in jail in prison, if he begins to have this idea come to mind that what if God's people had holy armor? Not just like the Romans, but what if, what if that model of their armor was, was now translated into the holiness that God is calling us to, this holy work that he's calling us to? It makes me think of Isaiah chapter 59. If you're familiar with it, 50, Isaiah 59, the people of God aren't living up to the vision that God has for his people. And so God actually says, I'm going to put on the armor. And the armor is similar to what we hear in, in the end of Ephesians. God is going to put it on and do the righteous work for us. So maybe that is in Paul's mind, too, as he's thinking about this. I think we need to begin with an acknowledgement, though. Armor serves a purpose. Protects us. Why does Paul draw on this metaphor for us? Well, we need to acknowledge that we've sung about and we've talked about the, the coming together of heaven and earth, but the reality is the world doesn't always like this, do they? It's not always open to the idea that heaven and earth are coming together, that resurrection is happening, that, that God's holiness is being poured out onto this world. The world doesn't always respond in kind to this. An obvious example of how the world has responded through the ages comes from John chapter 1, verses 10 to 11. Very beginning of John's gospel, he says, He, Christ, was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. If the world isn't always inclined, rarely inclined to embrace the holy God, do you think they want to embrace holy people? Not very often. And so Paul acknowledges the struggle that we face. Because this letter is all a bit, has been all about us being called to do the holy work, to be holy people. It's going to be a struggle. He wants us to know that. But don't forget all of the good that he's already talked about. He's not starting his letter with this word. He's ending this letter with this word. So we need to be reminded as believers, as people who come into this place, as saints, as holy people, that we need to be reminded of all the good that God is doing. We sang about that today, didn't we? In fact, I want to suggest to you this is part of the reason that corporate worship matters. 
It's why it needs to happen. Because if you live a holy life out in the world, it is hard. It is not uplifting. It is not always encouraging. In fact, sometimes it is downright discouraging. And you can walk into this place wounded because people have not liked the way that you have lived your life. And so we gather each and every week. We come in maybe limping a little bit from the wounds that we carry from the week of trying to live a holy life so that we can be mended and tended and encouraged and renewed to go back out, breathed out by God and his Holy Spirit to be the church. Church matters in part because it's corporate. It's a gathering. It's us being renewed each and every week. But church is more than just a building, more than just a gathering, isn't it? Church is also the body of Jesus Christ. It is us, the people. You are breathed out each and every week to go forth to live a holy life. And Paul wants you to know you don't do it on your own. So he says to us, be strong. Now, it might be at this point that we just kind of shut down a little bit and we begin to think, okay, I need to be strong. That's right. The world is against us. It it doesn't always like what we do. It doesn't always like how we pattern our lives, what we stand for. I need to be strong. And immediately, if we transition to that too quickly before we listen to Paul, we might begin to take on the habits or the characteristics of how the world treats um, or how people in the world who are considered strong act we might begin to take on their habits, their practices. Oh, that's what it means to be strong. So that's what we need to do. That's dangerous for the church. You get that, right? That might lead us down a path that's not quite so holy. But did you notice that Paul didn't say, be strong, period, end of sentence. But he said, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, period. Church, If we're going to be strong in the world, then we got to be strong with God's power, not the worldly power. God's power has already come to us in this letter. Do you remember in chapter 1, verse 19, we were told that God's power is incomparably great. His power is a mighty strength, which Paul says was exerted when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. In other words, God's power is best understood as resurrection power. Church, we need to keep that in our mind when we think about power, and we think about power a lot. We have to. It's constantly talked about in the world. Scripture is filled with all this imagery of power, but when we think about power, what we need to keep in mind is that the apex, the the most beautiful presentation of God's power is the resurrection. It is life Uh, coming from death. It is God raising up Jesus Christ and that gift being extended to us. In fact, Paul has already reminded us of this in chapter one uh, or chapter two, verse one. He says to us, remember you are dead in your sins, but now you have been made alive with Christ. Chapter two, verse five, one verse later, he says, we have been raised up with Christ. And he's not talking about just in the future, although the final resurrection happens in the future. But right now, you and I get a taste of the spiritual resurrection that is happening. Where once we were sinners, once we were dead in our transgressions, but now we have been made alive in Christ Jesus. Oh, good news for us, right? Isn't the church about good news? Resurrection is happening all over right now. 
This power of God is so radical that it means that we who were once considered foreigners and strangers, that's what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, do you remember that? Have now been brought near. We, who once were considered sinners, have been brought near to the presence of holy God. And now, he's called a saint, but more than that, he, just, he says in, in Ephesians 1, 5, that you have been adopted as God's sons and daughters. Once foreigners, once strangers, once out there, but now you have been brought in near, a part of the family. This is the resurrection power of God at work. In fact, Paul is so sure of this that if you were here last week, you heard these words from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. We are to be imitators of God. Whoa. That's how powerful resurrection power is. That we can become imitators of God in the way that we love. He says uh, in, in a few verses before that, that this resurrection power helps us to put off our old self. Chapter 4, verse 22. To put off our former way of talking, chapter 4, verse 25. Do you hear the contrasting language that's happening here? Put off, put off, die to that old way. Put on the armor of God. This is resurrection happening. It's happening right now. The point I'm trying to make to you is that I don't want you to miss out that God is giving us his mighty power. We're human. So immediately, if we're not careful, if we're not cautious, we might begin to wonder, well, how can we use that power for our own glory? <laughs> if I have resurrection power, what could I do with that resurrection power? That's obviously not what Paul is getting at at all. Because the only way we have access to this mighty power, this power of God, is if we are in a living relationship with Jesus Christ, with God Almighty. It's only as we are near him, that we become like him. Go back to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. There's an amazing prayer. We've read it a few times uh, the last six weeks. I don't have time to read it again. You should underline that prayer. Go back and look at it. And look at the way power is portrayed in it. That it is only as a result of us being in a living relationship with God. And it's because we have the power of God at work in us that Paul tells us to stand. Did you notice he says it four times? You probably should pay attention. I should probably pay attention here. Stand. In fact, he says, stand your ground. Now that's language that we have to talk about. It's kind of problematic language if we're honest, because guess what? We're not the only ones talking about standing our ground, are we? All over, it seems like in, in our society right now, are people talking, using this rhetoric, stand your ground, stand your ground, and they're meaning all kinds of things. And so we need to be cautious. What do we mean in the church? What does it mean when we say, stand your ground? Is, he, is that even the best way to say this now, given the way that the world likes to use this language? Often when we hear the world say, stand your ground, it's violent, it's, it, there's a conquest style to it. We have to overcome the enemy. We have to destroy them. 
And you notice in, in this passage that I read, there isn't really any violent imagery. There's armor, which is militaristic, of course, but there really isn't conquest language. In fact, the posture that, that seems to come across, the way that we are supposed to carry ourselves, seems to be rather defensive, on guard. And so I'm wondering if we need to think about what does it mean, what does Paul mean when he says stand your ground? Because I don't want to necessarily hear this in the way that our culture today is hearing it. What does Paul mean? And so I think in order to answer that question, we have to think back to words that we've already heard. Stand your ground. It reminds me of chapter 3 when he talks about us being rooted in love. To stand your ground is to be rooted. Rooted in God's holy love. I think about being rooted in God's holy love, and I don't know what comes to mind for you, but I think of some of the imagery of trees from Scripture. Psalm 1 is a great one that comes to mind where it says that we are trees planted next to living waters. What's the idea behind that? The righteous person is a tree that is planted next to living waters, is that we can survive that we can actually live in this world, that we don't have to be overcome, that we're not going to be destroyed by everything else, but we can have uh, security, we can be planted, we can be rooted. I think of this, and I, I, we pastored in California for a while, and only two people in first service raised their hands, but have any of you been to California and seen the giant sequoias? Been to them? Yes, yeah, few of us. If you see it online or if you see it on uh, a picture, it just doesn't, it doesn't carry the same sort of weight, does it, for anybody that's been there? I don't know how to explain it to you. It is awe-inspiring to stand in front of a giant tree that is massive, so big that some cars can drive through them. That's how big they are. So tall. Some of them have been standing over 2,000 years. That's rooted. <laughs> right? That's, I think, kind of the imagery that we need to be thinking about when we think stand your ground. Don't think the violent imagery that we hear today, but think of rooted. I could survive storms, chaos. For 2,000 years, trees have stood their ground. That's amazing thought to me. We could be like that. I also think of chapter 4 where he says we need to stop being tossed to and fro. That to me sounds like anchor language. Rooted, anchored. So that when those storms of life come, when those different ideas come crashing in on us, we're not tossed to and fro like we're in some boat adrift on the ocean. No, guess what? We are grounded, we are rooted, we are anchored to a point. Do you hear me, church? When I say stand our ground, this is what I think we should have in our mind. That we stand for something. And what are we standing for? For Jesus Christ. For the gospel. For all of this that has been given to us in Ephesians. That's what we are standing our ground for. I wonder though if we need to avoid that language just because it has been so, so kind of abused in our culture. That maybe mentally what we need to hear is stand with God. Because nobody in our culture is saying that. So when the church hears stand your ground, what we really need to hear is stand with God. And I think there's a particular danger that we need to point out at this point. Because it's really easy for us to assume when we say stand with God that God is on our side. I don't think we should assume that though. 
Because I think the posture of God's people, the holy people of God, is to make sure that we are standing with God. Not that God is standing with us. Do you hear the difference? It's subtle, but it's different. Tyler, in first service, I don't know that you said these words this service, Tyler, but in your first service prayer, you said, give us eyes to see like you see the world. That's the posture that I'm talking about. We need to be given God's eyes. We need to stand where God is. That's how we become a, a part of his kingdom. That's how we fulfill the, the mission that we've been given. In other words, what, what you should hear me saying is that we need to submit to God. We've heard those words already, haven't we? God doesn't submit to us. We submit to God. Notice how Paul describes the qualities of the armor or what they represent for us. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, the word of God. It seems to me these are all qualities or attributes of a holy life. These are not things that you can earn. These are not things that you can just do on your own. They are gifts that are given to you. As we submit to this God-patterned life that we are called to submit to, guess what happens? We take on these characteristics that look a lot like God. Because as we draw near to God, we become more like God. And if we get this right, if we don't get distracted by holiness as judgmentalism, holiness as legalism, that's the death of the church— or some version of Christianity that doesn't even want to talk about holiness at all. Kind of a weak version of Christianity, it seems to me. If we can avoid those mistakes, and we can live into this image, this, this vision that Paul has for us, where he calls us saints, and we're now becoming saints, then somebody's not going to be happy with the church. Who is it? Well, Paul wants to be very clear at this point. It is against the devil's schemes, he says, that we stand. It is, it is against the evil one's arrows that our shields defend us, verse 16. It is the dark powers, the dark forces in the spiritual world. I know this language is not always embraced in Christianity today. There are circles, pockets of Christians that think this is kind of taboo, outdated, embarrassed by this language, and so it kind of gets avoided. Of course, this idea that there's evil is talked about, but it's more of this general sense, right? And I don't know where you are. Maybe you're really comfortable with this language. This is what you've been raised on and you're good with it. But maybe when you hear this, you're kind of getting a little bit of like, I don't know about this. I want to suggest to you, I think it's really important for the church to keep this alive, though. This language alive. That we fight against the devil's schemes. That our fight is against the evil one. Because when the church begins to soften that language, when we get embarrassed by that language, guess what we tend to do? Demonize people. If we don't have somebody to point to as the originator of the evil, then we begin to look at people as the originators of evil. And we demonize them. And do you know what I mean when I, when I say demonize them? That means we dehumanize them. We say that they are less than human. Is that scriptural? Because when I read my Bible, it says that God created every single person in the image and likeness of God. In his image and likeness. Yes, we believe, church, that all people are born into sin. 
We all do evil things from time to time because of the sin in us. But are we inherently evil? No. No. We are not inherently evil. And so we believe and we sing about it today. That good news can break forth in any single person's life. That they too can discover that I can become a member of the family of God. That is good news for us. And so we cannot dehumanize people. Holy people don't lose sight of this. Because this is our actual mission in the world. The uniting of heaven and earth is not some impersonal, dehumanized vision. Scripture is very clear. God knows each and every person. He knows them so intimately. He knows the number of hairs on their head. He cares about every person. Every tribe, every tongue, every person. God's intent is for every person to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. This is why we exist as a church. We declare the love of God to the world so that light can shine in the darkness. Because there is an evil one. And he has captured a lot of people. And so our job is to live righteous and holy lives so that they can see that there's a different alternative, so that God's, God's power can overcome the evil one. This is a matter of life and death, and we are called to participate in this, so we best put on the armor of God. And never take it off. You get it, right? But you don't get to put on your armor for Sunday morning. Walk out, take it off when you get home. Live your life however you want the rest of the week. The holy people of God put on the armor of God and keep it on. These are the practices of holy living. I like how one author has said, this is how you and I practice resurrection. So I'm going to close the series, close this sermon with a kind of retelling of what I think Paul is saying to us. Saints are people of truth. We may live in a world that manipulates words to suit whatever agenda is being sold at the moment, but God's people stand for truth. Not truth as we define it, but as truth that is defined by God. We stand with God, don't we? If we stand with God, then the church is a community of righteousness. Right living is never convenient nor easy, and we may live in a society that is adept at compromising principles and neglecting people when it is convenient. But saints stand for righteousness, for a kingdom kind of living that says our actions matter, our words matter, because our lives matter. God's people are marked by peace, division, violence, war, abuse, coercion. They may be how power is displayed in our world, but not so for God's church. We stand for peace, the flourishing of all, the well-being of all, not just some. God's concern isn't just for you. It's not just for me, but it is for all of creation. Do you hear that? All of creation. But we know when we walk out of this place that it's a bit chaotic, isn't it? It's messy. 
all of creation is not singing the praise of God right now. And so we have to be a church of faith. People of faith see beyond or through the temporary and the immediate. Saints hope for things that are not yet seen, Hebrews tells us. We stand for faith. Because we want to believe that God is at work wherever we are. And so we're ever mindful as the people of God, that God is a God of salvation. The world is offering us their own saviors and a peculiar version of salvation, it seems to me, but there rarely seems to be anything but angry words. It's an us-versus-them mentality. It's mean-spirited. But the salvation of God offers us a new way of living, doesn't it? A way founded on holy love. Saints stand for God's salvation because we believe that Christ is the one true Savior in the world, don't we? And that he's the Savior of all humanity, not just some of humanity. And everywhere the church goes, there goes the Spirit, the Word of God with us. Words are cheap in our world. Say whatever you want, whenever you want, to whomever you want however you want, seems to be the posture of our digital age right now. But the church stands for the word of God because we know God's words aren't cheap. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And he was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. God's words are not cheap. In fact, so radical are they that do you hear what we now call ourselves? A word of God spoken into being. New life given to us. That's who you are. Now we get to live it. Paul ends this message with a call to prayer. I think it's good. It's a good reminder to us. He says that saints should be praying for saints. You praying for each other. You praying for me. Us praying for our other brothers and sisters all over the globe that call themselves Christ followers because there is power in the prayers of the righteous, that's what James tells us. We are knit together as a community, a holy body, to represent God or represent him into, in the world. What a challenge that lays before us, and we can't do it on our own, so we need the prayers of each other. But we also need reminders, don't we? Which is why we come to the table today. We need reminders that we don't do this on our own. The very imagery that, that we take the bread and the juice and it comes inside of us is a, a symbol to us, a sign to us that God wants to dwell in us, to be a part of us, to go with us in the world so that we can do his holy work. And I hope that you will commit to do the holy work that is required of you this week. Because if you do that, then heaven and earth are joining together in just little ways. As we prepare to come to the table this morning, I think we should pray. And the prayer that we should pray, I think, is the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, which is the Lord's Prayer. 
The words should be up on the screen. If you would pray with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Oh God, give us today our daily bread. Enough grace. Enough of your presence so that we can do the holy work that you're calling us to. So that we can be the church. Not just in this place. We thank you for this time that we've had together, but we now know that we are to move forth into the world to be your ambassadors, to reflect you in our words and our actions. And God, it's overwhelming and it's hard sometimes, and we need to be reminded that you go with us. So would you remind us, would you use the symbols of the bread and the juice to remind us that you want to dwell in us, that you go with us, that you are one who gives us grace to help us accomplish the work that you're calling us to. So whether we haven't yet given our lives to you or we've given our lives to you and we've done it a long time ago, God, would you extend grace, salvific grace, the grace that begins the resurrection process in it, us. Would you give us sanctifying grace, that, that, that grace that is continuing the resurrection in us so that we can become the people that you are calling us to be. Oh, God, give us grace. 